Welcome to From the Den Podcast, providing Bears and NFL fans alike with compelling news, discussion, and debate. I'm your co-host, Benjamin, joined alongside my dear friend and co-host, Orin. Hey, Benjamin, let's get right into it. As always, kickoff starts now. Welcome to episode 19 of From the Den Podcast, where we are joined alongside one of the most esteemed coaches in Arizona high school football history. He's won Arizona Coach of the Year honors in three different years, and he's had his high school teams ranked three times among the top 25 teams in the nation by USA Today. We could keep going on and on about all of uh, Coach Jeff Skurin's accolades, but I think we're just going to get into the podcast here. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing real good. You know, like anybody else, we're just trying to find uh, you know, good ways to, uh, to stay safe and to enjoy life. You know, it's uh, right now there's you know, the, the choices have narrowed, as most of your fans know out there. So uh, and we're just doing the best we can right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going on to your early ages, you were a journalism major at University of Florida. So how did you change from that to becoming a coach? Well, it was actually a, a, a real accident uh, uh, because uh, my brother was in medical school there and I had tried it, but unsuccessfully to, to play football in the Division One level. It's just, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, you dream about doing, but obviously when you jump from one level to the next, it changes a lot. And frankly, I was, while I was one of the fastest kids in my high school, I was just too small, you know, for that level. And, uh, but it, it, it took going out to practice and knowing it. But uh, so I became what, what, what happens to many players that, that can't achieve on that level. You, you turn into the scout team and uh, the coaches happened to notice that I was pretty good at running the scout team. And when I couldn't perform physically anymore because of surgeries, uh, they, they decided to give me some money to stay on and uh, work as a like graduate assistant coach, even though I was an undergraduate. So from that point on, I kind of had my fingers in the coaching things, and it was pretty, pretty much just an accident. I had no idea that I had any of those skills, but I wanted to be around it, and I wanted to stay with football. And, uh, you know, like you guys, I was, I was a fan, but it's, it's a little bit different when you're on the inside of that and not playing, and you want to feel, you know, useful, particularly when most of your good friends are, are in the starting lineup, and, uh, and you want to feel useful to them like you're helping, you know, in some way win the games. And so uh, the scout team is one of the most essential parts of, uh, of the behind-the-scenes preparation that, you know, things people don't see on television. But, you know, so I made my, my start through, through that thing, and, uh, and the head coach happened to notice I had some talent in there, and I was real fortunate. And, uh, and you know, I start, ended up starting law school, uh, like a lot of uh, journalism majors do, but uh, uh, it was really nice major, by the way, if you if you believe in writing skills, which I did do. And uh, but uh, law school wasn't uh, what my dream was, uh, staying with football was. So uh, I got some good grades, so I could go back if I wanted to, and then uh, and I moved into teaching coaching in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I've I've really never looked back. I've never regretted that decision. Uh, I think for me, it was, it's the right thing. Uh, my passion for the game and working with the kids and, and even some of the things that most coaches find distasteful and nasty. I just, it never bothered me. I just saw it as part of the job to be successful because what you're doing is when you're out there raising money and, and, uh, as you're helping kids, when you're out there, uh, you know, in, in a disciplinary hearing with one of your star players, you're really help, you know, setting the track for the future for that individual 
trying to teach as well as mentor and guide into a more positive area. And so, you know, it's kind of a natural thing for me and uh, ended up getting my uh, master's degree in psychology and counseling at the University of Arizona. And after taking a few jobs, uh, going back to Division One at the University of Nevada and then back to high school again, I, uh, uh, and 15 years later, I got an offer to come back to Tucson and, and the sunshine and the beautiful weather in the mountains. And, uh, and we, we've stayed ever since. Uh, I've had many opportunities to go back, but uh, kind of feel like I kind of found my niche here. So when you uh, finished law school, was the job that you took, was it a head coaching job? And how did you find that job or how did you work your way up? Again, it was one of those funny breaks that life gives your way. I was, uh, I was, I had left, you know, to go and looking for a teaching job, and had taken a temporary job at a newspaper in Atlanta. And uh, you know, I like to say, you know, you and your your father and I had spent some quality time together during that time. And uh, uh, but one day, I went down to uh, Georgia State University and uh, and said, I want to be a teacher coach. What's the best way to get in? And just at that moment. Uh, a few mo- a few moments before, they had had a person in a special program uh, who had left, and they said, "Well, if you'd like to, your qualifications meet what we're looking for." And so I was just the right place, at the right time, and and took a job in downtown Atlanta in a in a school that a lot of people might not want to have taught in, but I felt a real uh, attraction to it and real need to work with the uh, with the kids and help them out of the situation. And we were real fortunate because you know it was. Uh, it was a great learning situation and we won a lot of games and that, that kind of helped me, uh, you know, land the next job. So. Yeah. So you're known for as many accolades as you have. Your biggest thing is turning around programs, teams that are going, Oh, and 12, one and 11, having losing records. You take them and they do amazing the next year. How do you change a team so fast? Is it you, you scouting good players? Is it discipline? Is it what you teach them? What is it? <laughs> I was so, you know, I get this question obviously a lot. Yeah, USA Today did an article years ago. Uh, or, or I wasn't that long ago, actually. It, was, it seems like it. But uh, they told me I'm the only coach they've ever been able to find in all their research that has taken over three winless teams. And in my first year, we went to the playoffs, two of them to the semifinals in, in 2007. And I was fortunate to get the NFL uh, National Coach of the Year Award. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you change culture. You just don't snap your fingers. Uh, let, me, let me share this with football fans out there and maybe want to be coaches. Nobody is that good a coach to go out in the field and brilliantly change strategy and turn a team around. It, it just, it doesn't work that way. You have to, you have to change the culture. Uh, football is a game where the winning is in the preparation and it's, it's a, it's a eight, nine month process to prepare a team from the off season to, to, to the meat of the season. People, people sometimes think the start of the season is when you s- stop the preparation and start playing games. And that's not true. A team develops over time. And particularly in the beginning, you, you have to get the right people in the right places. It's a little bit like a chess match where you're actually selecting personalities and whether they're a knight, a rook, or a bishop, uh, or, or even a pawn. It's, it's, it really is like that. And the, the psychological background that I got in school has helped me a lot. But you're going to change a culture. 
and you got and and that means you don't do it by yourself. You have to have great help from the administration, uh, from the booster club, whether it's in college uh, with the with the alumni or the parents if you're in a school setting, and 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 then you have to convince the kids. And strangely enough, that the athletes, the players themselves, are the easiest part of that formula. Uh, the rest of it is is trying to get schools to change their rules and their approach and 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 the, and the rest of the faculty. Let's face it, a lot of people out there are afraid of of highly successful football programs. They really are afraid of it. They're somehow afraid uh, that it will damage the academic re- reputation of the school by being good at football. Because let's face it, particularly in Division One, there are some uh, colleges that aren't that great academically. But uh, they, they do very well on the football field. But then you have your Stanford's, you have your Notre Dame's, you know, you have you have all these others that, that are great academically that completely break those rules and they could be good at everything. I often uh, when Harvard was making their run, there's something like when uh, uh, championships in the Ivy League out of 14 seasons. And I used to use that all the time. You know, how come Harvard makes it work? And the reason why they do make it work, it's important to their administration that whatever they touch, they do a good job with. And when you stop and think about it, that's a wonderful message for students, whether it's high school or college. You know, if you touch it, you finish it and you do a good job with it. You know, that that's what we're here training you to do. The facts and the information that you learn in college, you can get that out. You don't need to attend class to learn that stuff, as you guys are finding out right now. You can learn that stuff through a computer or online or even... Now through your telephone, you could you could find out the whole dang Library of Congress right in the palm of your hand. And if so, if you're just looking for information, you don't need college. What you need college for is to learn to develop the skills necessary to be successful in life. And I've always thought that football was a great training ground for that. So my teams win by by doing things a certain way. And 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 I get hundreds of, of letters back now that I'm you know, and a little bit older and uh, get these letters back from these students that are in all sorts of levels of occupation and saying, coach, I'm successful because of what you taught me on the football field. And, but they're not talking about football plays. That's for sure. Talking about process and, and a way to live. Yeah. It's interesting because football is known as one of those sports that you build so much about yourself. It's teamwork, discipline, hard work, and all of it comes together. And even though you realize even if you're not amazing at football, just being on the football team teaches you so many life lessons that it's worth it. I, I did a, a clinic presentation for years that listed, in my mind, the 10 most important things uh, uh, that, uh, that I thought it took to win football games, you know, having this reputation of this turnaround artist. And, yeah. and people would ask me that. And I listed these 10 things. And athletic ability was not found on the, on the top 10. It certainly is an important feature. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a lot of great athletes out there that lose. And there's, and there's a lot of uh, non-athletes or limited skill athletes out there that are highly, highly successful. And people turn on TV and they look at, uh, at Patrick Mahomes or they look at LeBron James or look at Michael Jordan or, or pick your sport. It doesn't matter. And they look at what I call the freaks of nature. And those are the people that have the athletic ability, the body, the brains, the attitude. They were brought up a certain way, uh, and it all just blended together. And when you get those people, it's very, very rare. You know, the people that watched uh, uh, the, the the latest last, last series on on, uh, on Michael Jordan, you know, yeah. saw a complete person. They they didn't they they saw how his upbringing 
and how his early experiences molded him into that person that now goes out on the golf course and has to have that competition. He's got to win. It doesn't matter if he's playing cards, playing golf, or, or even playing basketball to this day. You know, yeah. he's got to win. And, uh, and there's, there's actually a lot of us that have that personality trait, but in, in particularly in coaching, but we didn't have the body uh, to, to carry us through the, the sport. And so we found our solace in coaching and, and, and in developing uh, the lives of student athletes. And that's what takes you, you know, why, why, why are you not coaching pros or why are you not coaching division one? And, you know, I, I found that to complete what I wanted to do is in my career, I wanted to work with, with kids of, uh, you know, of all different abilities and, and, and teach them that the academic component and the things that they, their personality traits that they could do, they could win in life. You know, and I, I like to say it all the time, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the talent, uh, talent, uh, size, you know, things like that. Those are all things that you lose with. You know, you have to, no, no matter if you have those things, you know, there are people that don't have any talent, that they don't, don't have any brains, that don't have any money. Because let's face it, coaching nowadays is all, you know, if you don't have the scratch to get out there and get the great private coaching, it's, it's getting harder even to compete, which I, and I don't like that, but that's a, that's a fact of nature today. But there are plenty of people that have none of those things and still find a way to win. And those are the ones that I like to watch. Those are the most fun to me. Mm-hmm. What are some of the traits that you try to drill into your athletes and your players most? Like what kind of attitude should they have and that you try to bring to practice? Well, let's go back to a job interview. The, the most, most important things you guys are going to you know, find out as you, as you, you know, progress through uh, and, and graduate. To you know, your first job interview is going to be one of the biggest things in life. And number one is, you know, I always say, you know, to, to win the big game, you got to be in the big game. You know, so you got to be there. You got to be on time. You got to, you know, be properly mentally prepared. You got to dress. You know, that, you know, just just think about going, like say, going to a job or your first week on a new job. And th- those are the things that make you coachable. That make somebody want to work with you and have you as part of their team. You know, put yourself. In, you know, I try and get my athletes just to switch roles. To put yourself in the coach's shoes or the college professor's shoes or the teacher's shoes or the or the shoes of, of, of someone that's hiring you for a job or your boss. And and what would you want out of you in that situation? And if I could project that into my student athletes and make them understand that I have a job just like their mom and dad have jobs. And only my job is to be their coach. And, and part of my job is to find a way to, to pull the best out of you. And, and if I do that, then we have, we have geometrically expanded our chances to be successful in what we're doing. Now you, now you start to get into the fun part, and that's finding a strategy that meets the talent and the, and the types of athletes that you have. And that's, to me, where a lot of coaches go down, a, go down the rabbit hole. They just don't uh, – they have their way – and, you know, in college, it's fine. You know, you can, it works sometimes because you can go out and recruit those kids uh, and pros, you can draft them and you could trade for them if you don't have the players to meet your system. But coaching in high school, you know, until recently, now we've seen this spat of kids picking up and moving high schools to better themselves, in, you know, in terms of winning championships and getting college scholarships. But most of my coaching career, you had what you had, and then you had to make them into a team. And, I found that going into these, uh, uh, these, these winless schools and these hapless schools, I've had, uh, I think, uh, 
counting my overseas work in Italy and Germany, I've coached 10 different teams and not counting the, the, the overseas ones, which were also losers. But if you count all of them, all 10 of them, I have never taken over a winning team. They were all losers, all of them. And I'm attracted to those jobs because I, and certainly not all of them, because like I was telling you at the beginning, there has to be some building blocks. You, you know, you just, this is not a job where you can go out there with, with 80, 90 people on the field and, and snap your fingers and say, you guys are going to be winners now. And, and I'm going to throw this strategy and we're going to do it. it. It just doesn't work that way. And, and uh, what you see on television, when you watch uh, high school, good high school, college, you know, pro football, you, what you're seeing is months and months of preparation and, and getting people to buy into what you're doing and executing that properly at game time under great pressure. And, and not to not mention the, the fact that the other guy across the field wants to beat brains in too, you know? It's an interesting occupation. Mm-hmm. So you have a certain attraction, like you said, to those uh, losing organizations. If you were, have you been offered jobs at um, better organizations and you've turned them down to go to losing teams? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a combination of things, you know, particularly when you... Uh, uh, since 1984, I've stayed in Tucson, and that's kind of been a deal breaker. Uh, you know, we, we, we just wanted to be here. And if it was going to be a job we were going to take outside of Tucson, it had to be something pretty special and, uh, and, and a good financial payday because the weather here is just pretty spectacular most of the year, and it's a tough place to leave. It's a beautiful community, and the cost of living is very moderate. And so we enjoy being here. And, uh, and I went to graduate school here and was gone. So we had the taste of, uh, of two different times to, to be able to, uh, uh, you know, get a good feel for what, what life was like in many other places. And, and yeah, but you look at a job and you look at the whole thing. And, it's, and the question is, is not can someone be successful here? The question is, is can I be successful here? And, and that's what you have to look at because we all need different things because, frankly, we all have, you know, different strengths and weaknesses. And part of that formula becomes, you know, is there somebody, are there people around that I can hire, particularly in high school, because you're not going to bring guys in like you do in college or the pros, you know, but there are, are there guys around here that I can coach with that want to, that want to be part of what I'm doing. And in some cases, I, you know, uh, uh, once I took a job where that wasn't the case, they just kind of lied to me about what they had. And I wanted that job and, and uh, it looked good. And promising i sure i like the kids i'm still in touch with a lot of them today but uh but the surroundings just weren't we won and it was but it was it was just it was no fun and uh and i went from there to another job and uh uh and and i moved we, they were one and nine and uh the next year we were 12 and one and the next year we we're in 14 and 0 state champions and ranked number 17 in usa today and it just kind of that kind of exploded. Uh, uh, there was a sports writer Dave, uh, named Dave Kreider, who is the uh, sports editor for, editor for USA Today, and he just took a fascination in in that that turnaround thing that we had done, and uh, uh, and we knocked off the number sixteen team in the nation in the state championship game. Both of us were undefeated. The lead changed hands seven times during the game. It was really one of the best. Watching the film, it was really one of the best high school games I've ever seen on TV in terms of of two good teams and entertaining and lead changing hand back and forth. And, uh, uh, we scored a touchdown, uh, uh you know, with, with, uh, a couple minutes to play. And then we had the, to hold them off at the end and uh, great, exciting game. And, uh, you know, it, it, those things are so much fun. So what I try and tell coaches that ask me about these turnarounds and, and all the time is what would you rather do? Would you rather be the, 
you know, attacking the castle outside in the countryside, deciding which days you want to fight not, or would you rather be in the castle and defending it? And I've never found that. I, I, I call that like, you know, the, to me, I divide athletes into two categories. I call them doers and victims. And I want to be around doers. I want to be around people that want, that want to be active, that want to go from A to B to C to D. And I very much follow the scientific method, very much. You know, you, you can't jump, you know, you can't jump to a conclusion. You got to go through the steps. And you can go through them rapidly. And, and that's great. That's what I like to do, obviously, because I'm not a real patient person. But, and, and obviously we've done it because uh, every single team I've had that was, you know, winless, one, two wins when I took over. Like I said, they were all losers. And every single one of them was in the playoffs by my second, second year. Uh, uh, 75% were in the playoffs my first year. And they were losers before. And you, again, you don't do that by yourself. You do that by, by, by kind of rallying the troops. You're, you're, not, you're not George Armstrong Custer. You, you see what I mean? You're more of a general grant. You, there, there's things that have to be done. There's, there's, there's foundations that have to be built up. There's walls that have to be reinforced. Uh, you, you might need some new troops. You might need an infusion of, of capital to help you get things you don't really have. And, uh, you, you know, you, and you can't get around that. There's just, just, just no way to say, oh, I'm not going to do that part. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, and I kind of pride myself on on not 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 just doing each one of those steps, but but by meticulously doing each one of those steps. And I, I call it the trivial differential. And and it, and it's it's one of those things that we pay scrupulous attention to such small details that most other people don't even notice they're there. And, and that's kind of if there is a secret. To what I do, and it's certainly not a secret. That's done by corporate people and and entertainment people and and, and individual athletes in all sports. But that's that's a hallmark of what people do to to be just a little bit better than the other guy. Because remember, this this coaching profession, there's a lot of there's a lot of good strategists. There's a lot of good people out there with great new ideas. You know, but they can't manage people. They can't manage resources. They don't take care of their players off the field. And you see them getting in trouble all the time, you know, and sometimes they do that. And, and their brilliant stuff just doesn't match the team that they have. And then, the, you know, losing. And when 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 really sound fundamentals would have carried them home all the way. And that that's that's another thing. I mean, I, I we need to be the least penalized team on the field. We're going to win the special teams battle. You know, we're not going to give up the big plays. We're not going to turn the ball over. There's just certain things that, that make you close in games. And when your team's hungry and you're close in games, when they weren't in that game the year before, they're getting beat by 50. And now they're in seven points within seven points in the fourth quarter. That, that, that's, that's not the same guys. They may be the same people, but they're not the same guys. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. That changes everything, you know, and, and it changes your opponent. Your opponent was up by 30, 40 points last year, and now they're, they're, they're only up by seven going into the fourth, and they're going, what's going on? Who are these guys? How come, you know, and, and, and they start to get a little flustered, a little bit nervous, and now they're not playing to win. They're, your opponent is playing to stop, not, you know, to not lose, and you can't play that way. That's, that's a horrible that, – you, you, you see that all the time that people turn on TV and, and a lot of fans get out there and they hate teams going into pre prevent defense, right? Mm -hmm. They don't understand why that. Well, coaches get fired when, when they're, you know, in 30 seconds ago and they hit a 70-yard pass play. 
Coaches lose their job over that. So that's why they go into that prevent defense. But that prevent defense is a mental defeat in itself. And what you're telling your defense has been great for four quarters. And now you're telling them, ah, we're going to get out of what's, you know, we've held this team off for four, almost four quarters. And now we're going to get out of that at the last minute. So you're planning a, a message. And what you're doing is you're, you're putting it into the hands of your opponent to you go out and execute, you go out and do your job and you're going to beat us. That's what you're saying when you go into prevent, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you have this juggling match of all these mental things of everything you do, that's just one little example. And, and, and every single thing that you do, that's one of the things in, 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 in the book that I wrote and, and, the, and talking my way through that, the, the game itself, which is what the, the, fourth, the fourth quarter of the book is, because I kind of divided it up into quarters. Heck, I am a football coach. And I divided it up into quarters. And the fourth quarter is the game itself and all the different strategic decisions that you make on the sidelines and the, and your coaches and how, the other coaches and how, how you, the other team, how you respond to that and try to walk the viewer through all of that from the seat of the head coach. That, that, that was part of my whole thing. As a matter of fact, I don't even name the head coach in the book at all so that the reader could, could be sitting in that chair, so to speak. And, uh, and maybe kind of see what it was like to be in that decision. Like there's one point in, in, in the game when we're, you know, when, you know, we're on the edge of almost losing it and we're, and we're behind seven to three going into the fourth quarter and the team, they're, they're better than us. There's no question about that. They're five-time national champions where they're in Texas. It's on national television. We're playing the game in Texas. It's a ball game. And, uh, you know, we got this multi-million dollar, multi-million viewer uh, audience out there and, and people are going, you know, my assistant coaches are going run this stuff because we saved some special plays, you know, just, just for the last drive. They're going, now we're losing it. We need a spark. We need a spark. And trying to get everybody to be patient. You know, we're, you know with the, the, the motto was, you know, was, I, I told the team all the time, get us to the fourth quarter within seven points mm-hmm. and we're going to use this last ditch strategy that we're going to practice over and over and over again. So that's like the most rehearsed thing that we would do. Like Bill Walsh used to do with his first 20 plays. That was yeah. one of the secrets that started the game off. Mm-hmm. How long after the game actually happened, did you realize, or did, did it come to you that you would want to write, write a book about that moment and experience? Well, I never did. It was actually other people. And it had come before we had won a game uh, uh, back when I was coaching in high school, Santa Rita High School. It was, it was the year I got the National Coach of the Year. And we'd won in a, a team that had clubbed us bad during the playoffs. And uh, we had this miracle uh, uh, come from behind win in the fourth quarter with, with something that most teams don't do. We were behind by two scores with about four minutes to play. And and a traditional strategy that I learned was, it was it's called the four minute strategy, which is just for that you're behind by two scores. You got four minutes to go. And obviously you need the ball twice and you have to stop them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, those strategies that you, when you think deep in your pocket, there's, there's, so you just don't go into those situations and go, okay, what am I going to do now? You have to have, you know, and, and kids are going to perform better in those clutch situations when you have, you know, we've rehearsed those strategies, even if it's just once or twice. And mm-hmm. so we went into that and we kicked the field goal as time ran out to win the game. And somebody told me, you know, this needs to be a movie. You need to write a book about it. And, and it always, and I started thinking about some of the wins that we had. But then when we had this uh, at Pima College, when we had this bowl win 
on national television only our fourth year of existence and we were uh we were 40 point underdogs for this game we were supposed to be the team that uh, uh we were the cannon fodder for uh and, and this is under the old bowl system not not the not the one they have now where they have the national rankings and junior college is a little bit different anyway. And so they picked the best team. And if they won in their game, they would be national champion. If they lost, then it would go to the number two team. And so the number one team, uh, uh, somehow we got picked and we got two uh, bowl bids, one in, in Georgia and then one in Atlanta and outside of Atlanta and one in uh, outside of Dallas. And we took the, the closer one, but also this one was on national television. And so we thought that was real cool. And then when, we, when I saw the film on them, I realized that I might have made a pretty good mistake because these guys were, uh, were, were exceptional. And uh, uh, so, so uh, but we found a strategy and a team brought in and, and things worked out our way. And, and we won the game on the last drive, you know, just one of those miracle things that, that sometimes happens. We won the game 10 to 7. By the way, they scored their touchdown on the first drive of the game. Wow. So you probably they just went right through us like we weren't there. And we had the regroup. And and again, in the book, I talk about all these psychological up and downs and how you manage it, frankly, because that's what it is. This is about game management as much as anything else, you know. And so uh, uh, and so afterwards, I don't know, it was, it was a little while afterwards. uh uh, but we went to live in Italy and I coached a team in, in Florence, Italy. And while we were there, I had a lot of off time during the day and, and I decided that I was going to write the book and, uh, and I'd kind of started and played with it in a little bit. And I took a cruise across the Atlantic, something I always wanted to do as a history teacher and feel what it was like to be out at sea crossing, you know, the ocean, like some of these people had done, you know, and you're even on a cruise ship, you're still seven, eight days without seeing any land or anything. Hardly the same as the explorers, but, but still yeah. you get that idea. You know, it's the same way when I drove the Alaskan highway, not quite the same uh, driving in a small motorhome as you as an explorer in a covered wagon, but but you still get the idea of how far it is and what what it must have taken. Anyway, anyway uh, when we were on that trip, I started writing, and it took me it took me five years to complete the book, and I completed wow. it in 2012 when I was in Italy. When frankly, I just had a lot more time to sit down and write than I would have when I was a teacher coach in the U.S. And you know, I can only do it some evenings and some weekends, and it's 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 quite a process. It's uh, uh, and so it was something I wanted to do, kind of one of those things where, you know, you want to go to Iceland or you want to, you know, uh, you want to skydive. And uh, for me as a journalism major, uh, writing a book was something that I just had in, had in my skull someplace that I'd like to do. And when this game came up and, and the way it, I said, this would be good because the backstory was just as good as the actual game story, because we had kids from all over uh, all over the country that, that we had recruited, uh, mostly because they wanted to play for me uh, and not so much of my being a great coach or anything, but because I helped kids graduate. And uh, these kids are, were athletically, junior colleges are, are amazing, the talent that they have, but the, the kids have, have some baggage. And uh, usually, uh, and sometimes they're academically, see, we had half of our team was academically very strong and could have been in any college they want. But in high school, they didn't play at a good enough school. Their coach didn't help them enough. They were an inch too short. They were 20 pounds too light. They were a step too slow. You see what I mean? And they wanted their shot to get to the big time for the junior college. And so junior college football is, is, is athletically, is, is, you remember Cam Newton came out of a, J, a Juco in Texas. And that's the league we went to play in, the league that Cam came out of. 
he wasn't there yet, but, but that was the same league. And so they were full scholarship, but we were not. So I had to get my players by attracting them some other way. And, and the, frankly, my staff and myself and how we helped kids get through college uh, was how we got players. Some of them came from other JUCOs that, and they just weren't getting any help. And, uh, and we put together the team that way. But one of these kids, had hit, his, his mother had died uh, from Alabama, uh, rural Alabama. And his mother had died uh, six, uh, about six weeks before of a, a disease. And, and two weeks before he was supposed to show up, his father was killed uh, in an automobile accident. And it was just him and his brother had half raised him anyway. And his church got him the money to, to get on the bus and, and come out to Tucson. At six o'clock in the morning, I get this phone call and he says, hey, it's me. I'm at the, I'm at the bus station. Can you come and get me? And I, he's calling the head coach to do this. Yeah. And I, it, was, it was hilarious. So I decided what the heck to go in. You know, the guy was perky and bright and, it was, and he'd been up all night, you know, all night, two days on a bus. And he was just happy to go lucky. And I said, I'm going to go meet this kid. And I went and picked him up. And, uh, and uh, uh, he, his whole life was in a suitcase, in, a, in one suitcase. And, and a duffel bag and a, and a backpack that he, you know, school backpack. And his whole life was in that. And he was coming out to start a new adventure and, and re-get, re-gear his life. And, and I picked him up and took him to my favorite breakfast place. And I ordered breakfast for three and I didn't eat a, a thing. And the kid hadn't eaten in three days. And, uh, you know, you, you get a story like that and he ended up being one of our superstars and one of the key players in the game. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we had to have a first down at the end of the game, to, to, we had to have it or we had to give the ball back to them and, and their powerful offense for one more try. And he made a miracle run to give us, uh, he was our defensive back, but he was our backup tailback because he was so talented. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made a miracle run to get us the first down to ice the game. And, uh, and it, we're still friends to this day. And that was 2004. Great. Um, when, you, when you guys were 40-point underdogs against the team from Texas, do you remember any of the players that played for that team? Did any of them end up going to play D1? Did any of them even make the, the pros? Yeah. You know, the team we played against, you know, and I can't remember most of their names. Uh, I, I do a pretty good job of analyzing the guys as players. And my, I have assistant coaches that do a great job at that time of knowing the guys and everything about them, their shoe size. And we try and find out weaknesses just like everybody else does. And for a bowl game, you got three and a half weeks of preparation. You know, so, you know, there's plenty of time to do that kind of stuff. And, but I, I kind of, I'm a, I'm a blinder guy. And, and my job was to convince, we, we, we were throwing the ball 35, 36 times a game. And we had the best pass receiving, uh, quarterback uh, receiving combination in the country. And, uh, and, and again, we're non-scholarship and we were real proud of that. Uh, and we went against a team that was a 4-2-5 defense and their five DBs were going to, if I, if I can remember, Miami, Florida State, Texas, LSU. Uh, I can't remember where the fifth one. I mean, that, that, but that's the kind of players a full scholarship school is going to get. I yeah. called one of my buddies that uh, was a running back coach at the University of Miami in Florida, and I called him up and I said, Donnie, you know, we're, we're playing Kilgore. What's it going to be like? And he said, ah, it's one of my prime recruiting areas. You know, they'll get 25, 30 players a year, go D1. Wow. Now you think, you know, you think about that and they can only start 22. So that means they've got backup players that are, but, but again, that's what happens at a, a full scholarship Juco. They can get that kind of talent yeah. and playing a state like Texas that has such amazing high school football. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I, and I don't remember their names, but I remember we had, uh, we ended up with eight kids that went D1 and they had 25 
And so uh, you can see the talent difference. But we had a lot of smart kids. We had a lot of kids from my old high school uh, and Savino that I had recruited that, that were that, that tweener type of kid that just didn't quite make it to D1 but wanted their shot. And it, 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 by that time, we were, uh, uh, we, 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 were, we were a competitive JUCO, even though we were non-scholarship in the, in the national NJCAA. We were a competitive team. Uh, our opening game, somehow, we had only freshmen. I think we had two sophomores. And, we, and the rest of the team was freshmen. And they gave us the defending national champion in an opening game. And we beat them. Wow. And we, and we didn't beat them by out-footballing them. We beat them by being more patient. We didn't turn the ball over once. We had close to 300 yards rushing. Wow. Uh, they helped us out by dropping. You know, they probably didn't take us all that seriously. And why would they? We're a first-year team playing our first game ever. And they're the defending national champions. And we had them at home. We had a sellout crowd. They closed the stadium uh, 30 minutes before kickoff. It was that fall. And our kids came out and played the way you'd want them to play. We played mistake-free football. And you get that. And, and, and we had to do the same thing in the bowl game. You know, we were so out-talented. I had to call in my my, my battery, my quarterback and, and receivers, and I had to convince them that we stood no chance, you know, if we, if we threw the ball the way we normally did. And these, these guys are looking, this is my shot on national television. And, and, but you know, you have to, when you recruit your players and, and when you build your team, you got to convince them uh, that, you know, part of being on the team, come on, we threw, we had games where we threw the ball 45 times, you know, don't tell me you haven't had your chances, you know, look at the films. You trust me as a coach, you know, here's the strategy. I told them if we throw the ball more than 22 times, we lose the game. Yeah. We won the game on the 22nd throw. Now that's that is not skill. I got to tell you straight wow. up, that that's pure luck. That is pure luck you know, to guess it that close. But that, in fact, that's exactly what happened. Our tailback was the MVP of the game. He had 176 yards rushing, and and we were going against a, a team where every single player on their defense was a Division One player. Matter of fact, they had the uh, runner-up for division uh, for the uh, national defensive player of the year. They had the runner-up as a defensive end. We, our outside linebacker, uh, Mickey Pimentel, ended up the national defensive player of the year based in large part on his performance on that game. You know, so, uh, uh, it, it, it's, you know, I say it, it, it's people have no idea behind the scenes what it takes to put it together, uh, you know, to say, uh you know, this is what we have to do. And if we get to this point, then we go in this direction and we go in that direction. And I, and I, I, I guaranteed that, that the quarterback and the receivers that the last drive would be theirs. You know, we just have to, everybody, we got to hang in the game. We got to keep the clock running. We got to shorten. You know, I, I think by, by the strategy we ran, for example, in a college football game, you know, where it's full 60 minutes, unlike 48 at high school, I think we denied them about 15, 16 plays by keeping the clock going. Does that make sense? And that yeah. kept our, that kept our defense from getting really, really beat up, and and which they were, by the way, and and they were in the fourth quarter they were hanging on by threads. But but I tell you what, when we took the lead and we needed a defensive stand, you you'd have thought every one of our players was NFL bound. That's how they upped their level of game, and that's that, and that's what you want. That's what you do your offseason conditioning for. That's why you run all the gassers. That's why you do all that. So when the moment's at hand and you're still in the game. You know, you've got you've got the physical wherewithal to compete to win. And again, that's that's it goes back to that saying that I drill in my players over and over to win the big game. You got to be in the big game and to win the big game in the fourth quarter. You got to be in the big game in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you teach that philosophy and you 
and you strategize for that philosophy. At the same time, you got to get input from your players because, you know, you want them to be happy and, and feel fulfilled that they're getting their chance to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so in the NFL right now, just going to the pros, there's some teams that throw the ball a crazy amount. And you could say 30, 40 years ago, it was almost, it was a lot more running the ball, playing hard-nosed defense. And now the NFL's turned into more of a passing league. If you were an NFL coach, what would your philosophy be? Would you try to adapt to the times and throw the ball 40, 45 times a game? Or would you try to run the ball, go off of play action and play good defense? Well, first, the running game is coming back to the NFL. And you're seeing a reemergence of the running back as a, as a key player where for, for up until last year or two years, it really started two years ago. And you're seeing teams that are, they're bringing themselves back into the, into the league by being under center. There's even talk of the fullback position coming back at least part-time, you know, people want to see offense. There's no, there's no question about that. They don't want to see a seven, three game. You know, you can get away with that if you win, but uh, or if, if you lose, you know, or even if you're losing close, that, that's a toughie. Uh, people want to see offense. That's just the way it is now. And I don't blame them. But, uh, but you're seeing a return to the running game. For me, it's a matter of what my talent is available. It's not what I like. It's what can we do successfully. That, that's always been my philosophy as a coach. What, what can we do as a team that's going to make us look, you know, on the field? You know, what, what, can we, what can we execute? And then specific game plan, what can we execute against that specific defense? And that's why you have to have you, – you, you don't go in a game with, with a game plan. You go into a game with multiple game plans because, well, what happens if your quarterback gets hurt, which we've all had if you've coached long enough, that happens. What happens if, you know, if, if your running back breaks his leg and in and, and the middle of the fourth quarter come back, what do you do then? You, you, you just can't give up. That, that's, that's a message that you can, as a coach, you can never recover from because remember a lot of those players you're going to have for the rest of the season or for next year, right? And they want to know that you have confidence in them too. So, you know, you develop an attitude of, hey, next man up. Yeah, you know, that that you know, that's something that you have to build. You can say it, but you got to demonstrate that, and you got to demonstrate that in front of their players all the time during the games. And uh, and and so I, I like to build my team around what what the skills are of what we have. You know, not what do you say you are. You know, what what do you do? Look at look at all behavior. Stop stop. You could you could say you know all people that are listening out there they could save themselves a real lifestyle kick in the butt by not listening to what people say, but by judging them by the sum of their actions. And if you do that, you end up with a chance to see what the person is really like, you know, cause we all, you know, come on, a lot of people can talk a good game. Some people don't talk at all and you don't know anything about them. You know, as one of the things I talk about in my book is the, is the, uh, uh, the part that a lot of people like is the pregame in the locker room before the big game and watching the different players and how they handle you know, pregame in the locker room. And you got guys that are pacing back and forth in the room. You got other guys that have their headsets on. They're laying down their heads in their locker. That they, they got a towel over their eyes. They don't want to see. They don't want to hear. They want to be into themselves. You got some guys that are social bunnies that want to talk to other people. You know, and you have to set up an atmosphere where everybody can be there, be themselves and be comfortable. Because one of the things you want as a head coach, you don't want pregame distractions. And so you want everybody to be comfortable in their own skin. And how do you set that up? You know, a boom box doesn't do that because you got a lot of kids that don't want, they don't want that level of noise. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so headsets have been a great, that's been a great thing, you know, to, to, so that everybody can be their own person. And, and so, you you know, you, you know, when you look at a team, when you decide what offense you're going to run, you know, whether you're going to pass, well, look, look at what you got and what can you can, what can you get, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and you're going to trade this player away. He's been in town for 12 years. He's the heart of the community. You know, there, there's NFL teams that, that aren't going to let that guy go no matter what. And there's other NFL teams that go, he's a player. He doesn't fit our scheme. So he's a great guy. Too bad he's gone and we'll get him someplace else. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see that all the time. I, I, who'd have ever thought, who'd have ever thought that will let Tom Brady go, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, I would have thought he would have been lived and died a patriot, but you know what? It changed, and, yeah. and, and that's just life. And and again, you know, I can guarantee you that that both. It's no accident that New England was winning all that, and it's not just Belichick, and it's not just Brady. It's the two of them, and it was the offensive coordinator and some of the receivers and a bunch of other people buying into that system. You know, there's a whole lot of people that made that together. But I'm willing to bet that Brady is going to be he's going to be successful. Maybe maybe on the Problem, maybe or maybe not on the same level. Belichick's going to be successful, right? You know, mm-hmm. you can see the short, this shortened NFL season. Which team is it has so far has the most amount of players that have opted out? The Patriots. It's, it's the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to think past the season to the future, okay? Yeah. And who is that going to benefit the most? The Patriots. They're going to get the pick. They're going to get draft picks. Uh-huh. They're going to have rested players. They're going to have the confidence of their players that have stayed with them that know that, hey, these guys they, these guys didn't blink when I said, I'm taking care of my family first. These yeah. guys had my back, paid me my money, said, hey, great, take a year off. We, we understand, right? And, mm-hmm. I, and, and that's just, and I mean, no one knows exactly how that's going to turn, turn out. Right. But I think it's a heck of a good strategy. I mean, to me, if I was one of those players that didn't feel comfortable and knew that team had my back, they'd, they'd have me. They'd have me, you know, and they'd have my wife and my family, too. Right. Right. And those things, you can't put a price tag on those things. You know, you get to the NFL and it's the same in high school and college. But a lot of times games are lost on the bus. A lot of times games are lost in the locker room before they ever get on the field. And, and again, the fans don't see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what's so great about the Patriots, what makes them so great is obviously they have a great coach, a great quarterback, but the reason they're so successful all the time is the culture that Belichick has built. Mm -hmm. It's a winning culture. When you go in there, you win games. And right now, next season, their team is not that skilled anymore. It's an average skilled team, but you can never count the Patriots out because they just have a winning, they're, they're just winners. And either, either they're going to win a bunch of games, contend for the playoffs or they're going to completely tank, get the first overall pick, mm-hmm. draft the greatest quarterback ever, and then they'll be set for the next 20 years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd say I don't think that their success was an accident at all. Uh, I think it took a lot of things. You know, you look at Belichick, and he, and he wasn't all that successful, you know, in the different teams, and, and now he's successful. Well, it's like I say, it's at the beginning, it's, it's that the very thing, first question you asked me, my answer was about you got to change the culture, remember? And, yeah. and that's and now you see the Patriots have that culture and that's not going to go on away in a year, particularly in this particular year with all these strange things and goings on and partial playings. And I, I don't think there's anybody in the NFL that doesn't look at the Patriots and seeing these guys not playing and isn't thinking, you know, old Bill's got another strategy he's about mm-hmm. to employ here. Yeah. Right. 
a very unique strategy. Yes, that's for sure. But hey, he's a pretty unique kind of guy. Remember, you know, before Belichick, everybody used to wear a, pretty much a coat and tie on the, on the sidelines. You know, maybe you get away with a polo shirt. Now it looks like they're out of football practice, right? Yeah. You, know, you look at most coaches and it looks like they're, they're gardening in their yard or something, you know? And, uh, you know, so he's, he's changed a lot without, without forcing the change just by, just by being create, creative. And yeah, you know, and, and did they fudge, you know, a little bit here and there? Do they push limits? And yes, but, you know, when you really look at it up close and personal, there's a lot of people in the organization that want to be part of that and think of that. That, that take the reins in their own hands. You know, one of the funniest things that, that uh, the, the flight gate with the footballs, you know, I could tell you that, that I've been in this profession 48 years and I can tell you the last 45, I never inflated a football. <laughs> Once I got out of that, you know, that, that, that scene where there was like three coaches and we all did it. I used to line the fields too in high school, you know, but you know, I haven't done that in a long time. I haven't, I haven't inflated a football in a long, long time. You know, my quarterback gets together with the equipment manager and they figure it out and I don't care. You know, if the referee checks the ball before the game, if he says it needs more air, it needs more air. I can guarantee you and all that deflate gate. You know, what people forget is before that ball got reported, you know, mm-hmm. that some referee had that ball in his hands for, for more than half a game, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you got to think about that when you say, well, they pulled the fast one. Well, a referee that since a new ball goes in on every single play, just about that, uh, that ball was in some referee's hands before it got on the field and he allowed it to go out there. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. Anyway, it, it's just, uh, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I don't have to be in love with the guy's personality either that want him on my team to play for him. That's another thing in a sport like football. You're not, you're going to, you you know, I always tell coaches be, be a human being first. And that means some of the players you're going to like, some of the coaches you're going to like more than others. That's not the big factor. You know, it's, it'd be great if you liked them all, but that's pretty tough in life, you know. And particularly when you get in an organization, you know, you at practice, there's uh, Division One. you got uh, over 100 players out there. You know, c- counting your ancillary staff on a football field at a Division One practice, there's 160 to 180 people out there, not counting people watching, uh, reporters, uh, live TV cameras all the time, you know, and, and you're wondering more and more why, you know, colleges don't allow that. Well, somebody gets fired for dropping an F-bomb at practice, right? Because it gets on national television. So what's the easiest way to handle that? Change my personality or not let a TV reporter, you know, <coughs> onto, onto my practice field, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah again, again, you want your players to be comfortable too. It's not just about you as the coach. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like, the fans don't humanize the players. Like in the NFL, there were players who were opting out this year. And instead of the fans supporting them, some of the fans said, you shouldn't be opting out. And I, it's, you sometimes need to humanize the players and treat them well. And especially if you have a coach who doesn't humanize the players and who doesn't connect with the players. Let, let me tell you something. I'm working with, uh, with, a big major college NFL and even with the Olympic committee, world-class athletes and other sports. One of the hallmarks of all those highly successful people is we don't pay attention to what the fans think or say they're fans. They pay their mission. You know, they, they tune on their TV, which generates the income for, for the big time contracts like that. You know, the fans get the, that, you know, as long as they don't break certain rules, throw stuff and insult yeah. your family. Th- you think, you know, but fans want to, 
that's what that's what fans do. That's what they're there for. We, it certainly wouldn't be the major sport it is without fans. And and so you you know, an athlete's job is to do their job. You know, if you're paying attention to what the fans are saying, you're probably not achieving anywhere close to what you should as a player or a coach. And so you know what, I get that. And you know, would it be nice if they were nicer? Yeah, but you know, they pay their money, and that's what they get to do. You know. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. Making a basketball analogy here, are you familiar with uh, the coaches John Wooden and Bobby Knight? Of course. I, matter of fact, yeah. my, one of my uh, – uh, you, you couldn't have mentioned – for, for, for your analogy, you couldn't yeah. have mentioned two, uh, two better things because uh, I, I did a Nike clinic with John Wooden. And oh, wow. I don't know how a friend of you know that went to USC, one of my former players, told him about me, and he snuck into the back of the room unbeknownst to me. It was an all-sports clinic and uh in california and he snuck into the back of the room and he heard my speech and afterwards he came up to me and gave me a hand signed uh, picture of him with his pyramid of success wow. and told me that you know you're going to be famous someday and I, i'll ne- i'll never forget that and as a real young coach i got to spend three days with coach knight and wow. uh at practice and watching what he did and i could i could write a book about my three i should my three days with bobby knight and it was, uh, and it, I was just an outsider watching, but the, the guy, you know, the guy is a, a different sort, but let me tell you, when it comes to coaching, the guy, the man was a genius. I mean, it's, I, I'm my, my, I'm not like him at all. I don't want to be like him. Uh, I don't like some of the things that he's done. Uh, but you know what, it's when it comes to, but you have to be able to, to divorce yourself from that because he's him and I'm me. And I can't be him. And I tell this to young coaches all the time. You know, I want to be like you. And I go, no, 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 no. Don't try and be like me. You know. So anyway, go on, go ahead with your thing. But I just cool. wanted to tell you, I did. You you picked two perfect guys for me. I'm glad. Uh, and I think you pretty much answered it there because I was going to ask if you describe yourself as more as uh, John Wooden, if your coaching uh, style is more like John Wooden or Bobby Knight, whereas. You know, John Wooden is, you know, the nice, friendly, he works with the players guy, and then Bobby Knight kind of drills it in them, and it's harsh. But then you just answer the question and say... Yeah, I think I'm somewhere between the two. To okay. take the it depends upon what day you're... You know, and, and, and how you're practicing that day. I mean, there are players, and, and I, I have, I'm straight with my players when I get them, when I recruit them when I was in college, and, and when they come to play for me in high school. You know, my job isn't to be the nice guy. My job is to be the guy that helps them become successful. You know, we can make that easy. We can make that hard. Mostly it's not up to me. It's up to you as a player. But, uh, you know, but, you know, do the fundamentals, you know, be there, be on time, be ready to go, be mentally prepared, know your stuff, you know, EPEP. We always talk about that. Every player, every play. That's what it takes in practice. Games will take care of themselves. You know, the hard part is practice. you got to get kids out on the field physically and mentally prepared to practice. And to practice as, as, as close to perfect, perfection as you possibly can. And, and to do that, you have to structure your practices to make them as game-like as possible, knowing, knowing that there's only so many impacts in a, in a body. So if you hit too much in practice, you won't have anything left for, 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 for the game. If you, if, you, if you hit too much during the season, you won't have anything left for the end of the season when it's critical, you know, it's, it's a real balancing act out there. And again, that's knowing who your players are physically and mentally and, and being, come on. If it's, if it, if you go out there every day and it's never fun, gone, who's going to want to do that for four months. Right. Yeah. You want to have, you want to make it fun for the players or else they're not going to happens to practice and it's funny. You laugh, you know, 
But, you know, you, you also have to take, tell your players, you know, listen, you better pick your right time and right place to tell a joke. You know, we're rock and rolling right now. We got stuff to do. We're, we're right. that time, that clock, that, 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 that clock that's moving. You know, we got to get it one play off every 30 seconds, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in a place for everything. We're timing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's at TTO time tempo offense. You know, that's what we call that session and we got to get it off. And, and, you know, I don't care. You know, yeah, I get coaches that want to run into the huddle after every play in practice. Hey, you can't do that. I talk that I, I talk a big thing. I teach us. 30 yards of separation. 30 yards is the average distance that the coaching staff is away from their players on the field. And obviously that changes depending on what the ball is, but it's about a 30 yard average. And that separation, you know, your players in, in, in a big game, they can't hear you screaming and yelling from the sidelines, right? Mm-hmm. There's John Wooden, who cares, I mean? And yet Bob Knight in, in, in crowded arenas, his voice yeah. would boom across the arena and he'd say this and his players would jump, right? right. So there, there is no one style. It's what style fits you, the players you coach, the situation. John Wooden never had players transfer away. Bob Knight had wow. a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Both of, very, both of them were very, very, very successful. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we got a few more questions here. We're going to try to go a little quicker just to finish up. Um, so you've done a lot of different types of football from high school to uh, junior college, and now you're doing stuff in Europe. So what are some of the main differences in these types of football and what's piqued your interest most or what are you think you're best at and such? Again, the, the game is the same. Football is football. Football in high school, football in, in the NFL, the, the game part of it is the same. You know, obviously the talent's different. Sometimes the strategy is a lot more complex at the higher levels. Uh, not in everybody's system for sure, but sometimes it's not. Uh, you know, modern football is now about the broken play. That's why guys like Patrick Mahomes are, are so right. Yeah, the scramble. There's nothing there, and they turn it into something big. The biggest plays in football now, for the most part, are broken plays, you know. And But you, you say, well, that's just pure luck. Well, no, not really, because you, if you believe in that, then you get guys that can pull that off, and you create an offense that's going to get the quarterback outside of the pocket, you know. There's a lot of things you can do to enhance your chances to make a broken play work. But how do you defend the broken play? Now, how do you put a spy, one spy, on, on you know, on Cam Newton when he was young? You know, he was going to make you look real bad. I remember back to to, to when uh, University of Texas played USC when Pete Carroll was the coach, and he's a great defensive mind, great defensive mind. And uh, and the play came down, the game came down for the national championship, the one play, and and the the probably 750,000 to a million-dollar-year offensive coordinator for Texas called the pass. You know, Cam Newton took one quarter-second look at that pass, right? Mm-hmm. And then turned it into a scramble. Pete Carroll had one guy, Jason Seahorn, on 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 Cam Newton. I mean, on Vince Young, excuse me, in the open field yeah. to try to tackle him. No way. There was no way. And Vince Young knew it. He saw that spy, and he just said, "I'm scoring. I'm running through this other guy." Because they doubled down on the coverage. That meant everybody was, you know, they suspected a pass too. And Vince Young was said, "No, I know myself." And I know my my abilities. They got one guy covering me as spy. Forget it. And he did. He, we walked into the end zone, right? Yeah. And and, 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 and Pete Carroll scratched his head and said, "Hey, we called the right defense." Well, maybe. May, I, I you know I don't know. And then go down and look at the other Pete Carroll thing. Look at the goal line thing when they had the beast on the one yard on the half yard line 
and went for the pass against New England. Right. Yeah, be, because the analytics told them to do that against that defensive lineup that New England had in the, in the thing. And yet, here we are, basic high school fundamental coaching, you know, two plays from the half-yard line, you got the best running back in the game, certainly the best power running back in the game. You run it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes sometimes we make something that's pretty simple way too compli- complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, now I was just wondering, or and you can ask a question, actually. So I just want to know what advice would you give to young aspiring athletes, just players who are coming up and you just need to give them some advice. What would you say? Well, you know, to, to use your social media to your benefit, you know, you think about on and off the field, everything you do, everything you say now is, is, has a chance to be, you know, come up 10 years later, it could come up and bite you in the butt. You know, you, you got to think about using your social media, not just, you know, for, for, for that, obviously, to protect yourself and your image, but, you know, in recruiting and, and to and to be wise about, you know, what you put out there on the Internet. And 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 also you could use it as a great recruiting tool if you know what you're doing and yeah. you could learn the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's I, I mean, I watched my grandson and we're in the car and we're talking about something in politics or in life. And as soon as I get to one subject that he doesn't know, he I, I say something like in Constantinople, you know, t- t- talking about what's going on in Turkey today and talk about the history of Constantinople. And he's got it up on a screen in 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just so he can he has learned to use his social media as as his way to help educate himself to fill in the blanks that school doesn't do. You know, so social media is such a huge tool to improve yourself, improve your game and to damage yourself. And and you got to be real wise about, you know, how, how you do that and how you manage your time, because when you get on the upper levels, you know, I've seen so many athletes that have failed because of lack of time management skills. But uh, the last thing is to get back and to know the fundamentals. Like I say, you got you got to be you got to be coachable. You got to be reliable. You know, fitness and strength; those are things that everybody understands. But it's those other things, those other those intangible factors. Those are the reasons why most players fail. For seven summers, I worked with the incoming rookies for the Utah Jazz, uh, teaching them uh, the strength program for the team. You know, and, and of course, I watch. I had big eyes and watch Carl Malone and John Stockton and Jeff Horner oh, wow, wow. and, and, and got to work with guys like Greg Ostertag at seven foot, two and three quarter inches tall. And the dot drill we did that a guy like Malone would do in 45 seconds. Ostertag would take more than two minutes to do. And how to so footwork, things like I mean, things you would never, never understand. You know, Ostertag, for example, he had a, a combination of, of, of a drop step, drop step, jump hook. And, and, and a drop step backwards, going backwards, you know, fadeaway jump shot from, four, you know, five, six feet in the paint. And he had that combination going. And in college, he was unstoppable. And in pros, it didn't work. He ended up not being able to make it, you know, for a long time in the pros because he put the ball on the floor. And in college, you can get away with that. In the pros, you put the ball on the floor in the paint, it doesn't come up. You know, and yeah. I watch stuff like that. And I watch their habits in the weight room and their intention to detail. And, and listen, they cut away these guys that were amazing athletes, amazing, and did everything right. There was just no way they were going to make it living in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So, so you have to take into account all these different factors. You know, where am I playing? What am I doing? What are my goals? You know, and take care of the fundamentals. Be the best version of you you could possibly be. You know, you can't change who you are. You don't want to. You got to be you. 
but you got to be the best possible version of you you could possibly be. And that takes a lot of work. And that takes a lot of work on details. Little things like showing up, being having your notebook ready when you go into a meeting. I mean, I sat there in college and watched guys walk into the meeting. My job as assistant coach was they didn't have their they didn't have their playbook. Turn around, turn around, go back. Yeah. Right. And by the way, meet the trainer, meet the meet the, uh, the the athletic trainer at six o'clock in the morning for stadium steps. You know, that that that's how you know. Sometimes that's the way you got to get it done. And sometimes the player goes, "Screw that! I'm not going to do stadiums at six o'clock in the morning because I forgot my playbook." And the coaches say, "Bye! Don't let the door hit you. You know, right on the way out. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's." Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that you got to do personally, a lot of interpersonal skills and a lot of personal habits that can help you. And like I say, the cell phone today is such a big one because, come on, we all see people tweeting themselves right out of their line of work, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. It looks like we're about to end here, but this has been head coach Jeff Skurin. Thank you so much again. Thank and you. Good to see you guys and good luck with what you're doing and have a good school year. All right, you, you too. And I'll get you. a copy of that book. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of From the Den, please remember to comment or leave a review depending on your listening platform. Or if you're a Packers fan, remember to write some nasty reviews and comments. Thanks for listening and bear down.